Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So here we've got this really nice example where something as simple as adding a few pennies here or deducting a few pennies there leads people to draw conclusions about what other people are doing. Right? I mean, that, that's a really profound nudge. My advice would be for organizations to think about what some of the social norms there are and what some of the social norms are coming up. It's affecting those people who maybe do care about those five cents, because there certainly are some. And then it's also affecting the people who don't care at all about five cents. And this captures and changes behaviors of both groups. Colin, as you know, I uh, sometimes bring on some academic friends as guests to the podcast. We have another one with us today. Um, you have friends? I, I do have friends. Part of the reason I bring them on <laughs> is because they're interesting. Part is just evidence for my mother that I have friends. Um, <laughs> so I can document that for future generations. Yes. And in fact, uh, today I'm, I'm bringing on an academic who's just starting her career. She's actually still a PhD student and has already produced some really interesting and relevant research that I, I wanted to talk about. It was published in a, in a top flight peer review journal, or I think it, it's been accepted. I don't know if it's actually come out in print yet, but it, it was also published in Harvard Business Review. So Harvard wow. Business Review is not a peer review journal, but what they do is they, they take research that they find to be exceptionally interesting and relevant. So it's kind of this like stamp of approval and it's really yep. hard to do. Very, very little research gets publicized in that way. So, yep. very excited. Please welcome Allie Lieberman. She's a, a PhD student now at uh, University of California at San Diego. Welcome, Allie. Thank you. Very happy to be here. And I'll just chime in for your mother that you are a wonderful friend to many people in the academic field. And part of it is because you say nice things about us like you just did and help our self-esteem. You hear that, mom? Mom, yeah. who are we kidding? My mom doesn't listen to this podcast. All right. And, and you're writing the check straight away, aren't you, right? <laughs> yes, yep. She said nice things, didn't she? That's, <laughs> I think that's what we're getting. Um, so, Ali, this, this bit of research is really interesting, and it hits at kind of the intersection of a couple of topics that we're very big on in this podcast that we've covered from from various angles. Uh, we've got some some framing effects here. We've got some social norms in here. So why don't we start with you just giving us a high-level overview of what you found, and then we'll dig into to what got you there and, and what you find most exciting about it. Sure. So just as a little bit of background, um, we're noticing really all across the world that there are lots of incentives that are being put in place to encourage behaviors. So you can imagine going to the coffee 
store and sometimes they'll give you a 10 cent discount if you bring your own reusable mug or you go to the grocery store and there are policies being put um, in place that charge you 10 cents if you don't bring your reusable bag. So we're seeing all of these incentives everywhere. And usually incentives are believed to change behavior because of the monetary element of them. You know, people like to save money and they don't like to lose money. And in that way, a discount can feel like saving money and a surcharge can feel like losing money. So we were looking at this and said, hmm, you know, it's likely that these incentives are changing behaviors because of their monetary component, but we think that there might be something else that is going on. They might be doing more than we think. So in looking at this, we found that the way that the incentive is framed or structured, so if it's a discount or a surcharge, can actually signal to people whether the behavior is more of a social norm. So we found that when it is structured as a surcharge, it signals that the behavior is more socially normative. You can imagine going to the grocery store, and if I see that they charge me 10 cents for not bringing my own bag, I'm going to think that it's more of a social norm to bring a bag than if I saw the same thing but framed as a discount. Interesting. So if I understand, people draw the conclusion that everybody's bringing bags if the grocery store is going to charge me a nickel. But if they're going to pay me a nickel for bringing my own bag, then I, I don't draw that conclusion. Is that, is that right? Yes. And it's a little bit more nuanced than that even. So social norms can be divided into two types of norms. We have injunctive norms, and that's the idea that a behavior is something that people should be doing or people ought to be doing. And then we have descriptive norms. So that's what be the behavior that most people are doing. So the example you just gave is a descriptive norm that most people are already doing this behavior. And what we find is that if you get charged a nickel, as you just mentioned, you will infer that it's both more of an injunctive norm and a descriptive norm. So most people are bringing their bags and most people think that you should be bringing your bag as well. Yeah, so th this actually is, is really interesting because I remember this happening in uh, England and they introduced a five pence surcharge on bags, which is around, I don't know, eight cents or something like that. So, you know, not a huge amount of money. And actually, since then, the, the use of bags have dropped by 85%, believe it or not. So it is really now socially unacceptable to use your bag, actually. And when we come to the States, then we're actually surprised how many plastic bags are, are still used. So it's interesting, actually, thinking about it. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on a bit of a roll here. Because when we go in with our reusable bags, people look at us a bit strange, I have to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we just say, hey, we're from England, uh, and everybody understands. But I guess the, the interesting part uh, here, Ali, is that when it started – Clearly, everybody was using bags, and they, they they were then saying, "Okay, we now want to sort of break that habit." But I guess the reality is is that the majority of people, whilst they found it an inconvenience, bought into that new social norm. Does does, does that make sense? I think so. So we don't necessarily have evidence suggesting that you know if you start this 
brand new when nobody's doing the behavior, like you just said, that yeah. it would completely shift the behavior. And I think that's kind of where you need to be careful. So sure. my guess is in a lot of places, maybe even England, but there is already a general acceptance toward whatever behavior is being incentivized. So yeah. there is previous research by Ellen Evers and colleagues showing that the way a policy is framed can be more or less accepted depending on the behavior that it's attached to. So if a behavior is considered more of an obligation, then people are more likely to accept it if it's a disadvantaging policy. So in this case, you could think of a surcharge as a disadvantaging policy. And so it's more likely to be accepted if people already kind of view bringing a bag, as your example, as an obligation. So if people completely don't think that it's important to bring a bag for environmental reasons or anything like that, then we might see some type of backlash. So that would suggest that, yes, people were getting on board with this and thinking of it that it's a social norm, but it probably already started that people were at least willing to accept that this was a normative, important behavior to begin with. That makes a, a lot of sense. So I think people at the time were turning around and sort of going, yeah, well, we, we've clearly got to do something for the environment and these bags are all over the place. In fact, one of the big turning points in the UK was when um, the Blue Planet was um, was launched, mm-hmm. David Attenborough. And he made a, he, he made um, one of those um, oh, yeah. uh, programs about it. And that really had a big effect on uh, bags and plastic. Mm-hmm. So the the research that you did fits within this uh, much broader investigation of framing effects. So this is this mm-hmm. is very big in behavioral economics and nudging. It, would it be fair to characterize your research as, as being more evidence in favor of surcharges over discounts in terms of incentivizing people? Because loss aversion would say that that should already be true. And then you're, right. you're saying here's another reason why that is going to tend to work better? Or is it, again, is it more nuanced than that? So yes and no, everything's more nuanced, of course. But <laughs> so um, You were learning to be an academic so well. <laughs> um, so loss aversion, as you said, would in fact predict that a surcharge is more effective than a discount. And we say that that's probably part of the effect, but we also find a lot of things above and beyond loss aversion yeah. and suggest yeah. that it's um, driving behavior because of these social norms. And I can say that the findings that we have that are more of a social norms account than a loss aversion account, there's a couple of them. So first of all, a loss aversion account would predict that people would change their behavior in the moment. So I am doing this behavior because I want to save 10 cents here and then that's it. I don't change my behavior at all. So one of the really cool things about this research is we find that it leads to carryover effects. So Mm. if I see a surcharge in one store in my neighborhood, I'm going to assume that it's more of a social norm to bring a bag and I'm more likely to then bring a bag to another store even when there's no incentive in place. Because I've now internalized this idea that it's a social norm to bring a bag. So that's one of our very fun findings and something that loss aversion would not predict. Another element that loss aversion would not predict is that we find that people are driven by their anticipated emotions of violating a social norm. 
So I'll see that there's this 10 cent surcharge and I'm actually more likely to feel or anticipate feeling embarrassment and shame if I don't comply with that incentive, if I don't bring that plastic bag. And these social emotions of embarrassment and guilt are things that are tied to social norms and would not be predicted by any sort of loss aversion. And then a third one, and I'm giving you lots of reasons here, but um, loss aversion is typically thought of in a two to one ratio. So a loss is mm-hmm. typically thought of as twice as painful as a gain. So in some of our studies, we structure it like this. So we make the discount twice as large as the surcharge so that you can imagine they're, you know, loss equated and we still find this effect. So putting these all together, short answer after my very long answer (laughs) is that we do think loss aversion is part of the story, but that social norms are far and away of doing something on top of loss aversion. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. I think it's a really important point because some of the early criticism of these policies before they were enacted is that even with something like loss aversion in play, you know, we're talking about a nickel, we're talking about eight cents or 25 cents. These are not strong motivators for most people by themselves. And so the fact that these policies have in fact seem, or at least seem to have worked, at least in some contexts, requires additional explanation. So, so I like the way that you framed it. It's, it's likely the loss version plays some part, but you know, the loss of five cents versus the gain of five cents is also likely to not be super motivational. So there's probably other things going on here. Absolutely. And that's one of the ways their reasons, it's kind of neat because it's affecting those people who maybe do care about those five cents because there certainly are some. Mm-hmm. And then it's also affecting the people who don't care at all about the five cents. So like you just said, you know, whatever, it's just a nickel. Um, and this captures and changes behaviors of both groups. The interesting thing is I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of examples of, of this, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to widen the context a bit. The the one example, which is an interesting, maybe a variation on a surcharge, is you know when you have to put money in a if you go to a, a grocery store, and you have to put money in a one of the carts or trolleys as we would call them in England. Um, so you know you have to put money in the cart, which effectively means that you have to take the cart back to get your money out and all the rest of it. That's I guess a, an example of a of a surcharge, isn't it? It would be. Um, I'm trying to think if you could even have an equivalent discount in that situation. I suppose you could, but yes, I would yeah. say that's, that is a, a form of a surcharge, certainly. But it, it also made me then think about whether, and again, I could be extending this too far, and Ryan will tell you that this is what I do. So it, it made me think about booking fees. You know, when you buy a ticket, it really drives me around the bend that you have a booking fee. And even it made me think about tipping and taxes, mm-hmm. you know, 
and because those are sort of sort of surcharges, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And there is some again, you know, if you think of social norms, just with tipping, for instance, you know, typically a tipping in the states is fifteen to twenty percent. In England, it's ten to to twelve percent. In Australia, it's nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and each of those are sort of social norms, obviously, but there's some type of sort of surcharge so i'm sure your report hasn't got evidence of that but i guess it it feels like it's in that same type of area yeah so i would say those are all fees so money added on but they're a little bit different because they're not necessarily money added on to something to change your behavior so something like the ticket price surcharges there's actually other research looking at booking fees and what's known as drip pricing and how it really sets people. Um, and that is certainly has the same title of a sur- as title of surcharge because it's money added on, but it's not sure. necessarily trying to shift somebody's behavior in the same okay. way. And in a yeah. similar way, the tipping, that one is related in that it's money added and it's a social norm, but I wouldn't necessarily categorize that as a surcharge itself. Sure. There are certain types of fees that we we could parse out that way. So you can think about like the luggage charges. So once upon a time, you know, you were able to check a bag for free and then airlines started charging for it. So you could consider that to be kind of a surcharge. They were trying to disincentivize people from checking bags so that the planes would be lighter and use less fuel. There's now been kind of a backlash because now people are are taking ever larger carry-on bags to compensate for the fact that they're they're not wanting to check bags anymore. And that's causing problems in terms of loading and unloading planes. So y- you could play around with some of that. You know, would it be better for planes to or for airlines to charge a higher ticket price and then offer you some kind of discount if you check a bag or check a bag of a certain kind, as opposed to showing up, charging a lower overall ticket price and inducing a surcharge. Um, so th- I think that that even within some of these contexts, uh, you know, Ellie puts some good boundaries around the findings. We, we want to look specifically at fees that are or bonuses that are designed to change behavior. But I do think that there, there are potentially some some broader implications here for a lot of areas. Absolutely. And when you think about these incentives, they're like you just said, adding it on to ticket prices with the taxi example that you gave, we, at least in the U.S., with certain ride services, there's surge pricing where they try to disincentivize you from riding at certain times of the day. So absolutely, they they can be structured into these more typical everyday charges in a way that does shape behavior. Was there any evidence about whether you whether people thought that these things were fair? So I would have thought that um, the, if I go back to the bags, you go, yeah, we got to do something about, um, you know, the, the planet, et cetera. So I'm, I'm willing to take that hit and I understand that. And that feels fair. Or, or even do the, the bonuses versus the surcharges feel more or less fair towards yeah. the same goal? Yeah, it's a really good question. Right. So we do ask people in several of our studies after how fair they thought it was. And we did not find any difference between surcharges and discounts mm-hmm. for how fair they thought it was. We also asked about, did you, what was the reason you thought that these incentives are in place? And most people in both surcharges and discount conditions think that it's just a reward for behaving in a certain way. 
So again, though, that we circle back to what we started with this idea that if you were going to be uh, incentivizing a behavior that people really thought didn't make sense and didn't align with their community values, you might see something different. Do you dig into why surcharges communicate norms differently than uh, bonuses? Uh, what, what is, what's the logic there? What are the conclusions people draw? We have two different theories as to why. So, and this breaks into the injunctive and descriptive norms and suggests that it signals each of these differently. So remind us what an injunctive norm is again. One, one of the, the running themes on our podcast is how terrible academics are at labeling things. Um, we choose the, the least intuitive labels possible. So injunctive norm probably means something simpler than the label makes it sound. It does. It just means something you should be doing and that okay. people think you ought to be doing. So um, in that way, we build on that research that I had mentioned earlier that looks at uh, when people see a disadvantaging policy, so something like a fee like a surcharge, it's more accepted if it's tied to a behavior that's an obligation. And the opposite is, is true as well. So if people see something that's advantaging, like a discount, it's more accepted when people think that the behavior is voluntary. So you could think that the reverse is true as well, that if people see a surcharge, which might be construed as a disadvantaging policy, they think that it's more of an obligation. Oh, wow, people must think that I ought to be doing this. And if they see a discount, an advantaging policy, they think, oh, that's nice, but it's more this voluntary behavior. So it's a good thing, but probably not everybody does it. So what would be a what would be an example, Ali, of both of those? So we could we could link it on to like a surcharge and a discount. So, you know, even imagine that, you know, you are charged or you're more likely to accept that if people have to pay a fee for not showing up to required or obligatory community service. So you did something bad, you have to do community service. People will agree that if you don't show up for that, you have to pay a fee. That makes sense. That's Mm. fair. Going back to that fairness. So that's a bit like in Australia, you get fined for not voting. Yeah, really? I have not heard that. That's amazing. I love it, right? And they also don't have voting on a work day. Isn't that true? Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I know that they're um, one of the countries where if you don't vote, then you get fined. Hmm, That's Mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, that's smart. And and the interesting thing is you can go there and I think and sort of spoil your ballot, which basically says I don't want to vote for anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, But at least you have to register the fact that, um, which I think is a good idea. Oh, yeah. That's another topic. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that you can kind of, you can look at this from just a rational perspective as well. So imagine you're going to a coffee shop and as we talked about, you see that there's a surcharge. The company or the owner is unlikely to put a surcharge in place if nobody is doing the behavior because you know, they might have reactants, people mm, might get upset. Mm. And on the opposite side, they're unlikely to uh, put a discount in place if everybody's already doing the behavior, because then they'd be paying all their customers for something that they're already doing. And that makes sense. Yeah. So both of those, and that's more the descriptive norm. And the previous one was that should opt to norm. So I'm I'm trying to think of an example here, but maybe maybe this is um. In fact, I've just done this with uh, Amazon. So. 
Let's assume, therefore, that Amazon decide that they want to uh, move deliveries away from weekends, okay? Mm -hmm. Would it be more effective to surcharge people for a delivery at the weekend? I guess that's what your research is saying, rather than offer them an incentive to, to, to move their deliveries away from the weekend. Yeah, and, and real quick, Amazon ha- does actually have both programs in place for various things, right? I've, I've gotten offers to, like if you're willing to wait and ship these in the same box, then we'll give you a bonus. Also, as you say, you could charge a surcharge on shipping. So both of these are kind of within the realm of possibility for a company like Amazon. And we, our research would say that the surcharges would be more effective here. And as an N of one, I can also say I never accept their one dollar discount if you do it within you know two weeks later so as yeah. a prime example i never you take their discounts but i would probably change my behavior if there was a third chart So, uh, so let's try and tie this together, and, and and let's you know let's try and make this as practical as possible for people. What advice would you give somebody if they're thinking, "Oh, this is interesting. Uh, maybe I should play about with this." Um, what what should they do? Yeah, so we would say that it is important to first kind of get a lay of the land, understand who your customers are what their beliefs are and what behavior you're trying to change. And then if you're putting an incentive in place, it's important to realize that it's not just going to be changing behavior because of the monetary purposes. These are important tools. And we suggest that it can be signaling more than you might think, specifically that it could be shaping social norms. And if you want to shape a behavior, you're going to be more likely to do so by imposing a surcharge than a discount. Excellent. Your thoughts, Ryan? Uh, I love it. it it's really interesting. Um, my my advice based off of our discussion, a couple of things. First, I think more broadly than, than the findings that Ali discussed here, it's important to think about what your actions are leading customers to infer about you, about themselves, about other customers. So here we've got this really nice example where something as simple as adding a few pennies here or deducting a few pennies there leads people to draw conclusions about what other people are doing. Right? I mean, that that's a really profound nudge. And it can be very easy to walk into something like that blind. So give some thought as to that. What, what is it that, that I'm communicating? What is it that my customers are likely to infer? The other thing that I like about this in terms of practical application, a lot of research is in conflict with other research. So, you know, theory A applies here, theory B applies there, and that's good science, but it makes it very frustrating for anybody who wants to actually do something with it. Here we have a very nice example of multiple theories layering on top of each other, all moving in the same direction. You know, Ali was very careful to talk about boundaries around this finding and, and when you, you might not expect it to, to happen, which again is a very nice, very nice way to, to, to conduct science. But we have now a social norms explanation and a loss aversion explanation, both pointing in the direction of surcharges over bonuses. That's pretty powerful. That's that's a nice place to start as you are, are thinking about your strategy. 
Absolutely. And one, one additional thing I'll mention, most of the examples we talked about were for material goods. So we talked about cups, we talked about bags, and we do find that this effect happens even for behaviors that have no material good as part of them. So we find that imposing a surcharge on people for using hand sanitizer, something that's extremely relevant right now, increases the use of hand sanitizer later on when there's no incentive in place relative to a discount. So it's worth thinking about that these uh, incentives can be used to shape behavior even for behaviors that have no material piece to them. The bit I would add would be, I think that it's, it's interesting when you're talking about sort of shaping behaviors, because I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if many organizations necessarily go down to that level of detail. But to, to think about what some of the uh, my advice would be for organizations to think about what some of the social norms there are and what some of the social norms are coming up. In other words, again, particularly when you think about the environment and, and you know, all those types of uh, those types of things, all those things are going to start to become social norms. And I, you know, my advice would be to play about with this and, and, and see what happens, because it could be that it, this is another another tool in your armory to shape customer behavior. And it could be, you know, just thinking about it again, you know, moving moving customers from offline to online and in a load of different areas. So... Great. Um, so, Ali, if people want to get hold of you, then how do they how do they do that? Sure, they can email me. Uh, my email is Ali A L L I E B as in boy E R at UCSD dot edu. Wonderful. Okay, and what we're going to do is um, we'll put a a link in for the HBR article as well. And one thing, just a reminder to the listener, uh, we do do a, I'm not sure if I can say do-do, actually, but there you go. I think you just did. Um, we, <laughs> we do do. Colin, this is a family program. <laughs> I always laugh when I think of that. <laughs> no, you love working blue, but Colin, please. Yeah. We, we complete a, a podcast summary after this. Uh, which basically details out the sort of the main takeaways and the um, uh, key recommendations. And you can download that from beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. Uh, that's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. And we'll put um, Ali's links and uh, email in there so um, people can uh, access it from there. Okay. Good. Thanks very much, everybody, and look forward to talking to you next week. And thank you, Ali, for, for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Bye-bye. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.